Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. There were some announcements up here somewhere. Let me see if I can remember them. The ladies, the ladies pray, uh, prayer tea, Valentine tea will be on Saturday morning, uh, February the 14th, because that's Valentine's Day, and at the uh, West Falls, and you can, there's a sign-up sheet in the kitchen, and you can uh, get a map there, find out how to go, and that's on February the 14th, and there is a congregational meeting on Sunday morning, February the 22nd, immediately following the morning worship service. And then on Saturday, February, this isn't in order, Saturday, February the 21st, we'll have a family night at uh, uh, 5 o'clock. How many of y'all saw uh, Expelled? How many of y'all didn't see Expelled? It's worth the second show. <laughs> what? It's worth, show. it's worth the second show. Because we're trying to decide whether to go with Prince Caspian or Expelled. <laughs> How many of y'all had kids that want to see Prince Caspian? How many of y'all have kids that have already seen Prince Caspian? How many of y'all are adults that want to see Prince Caspian? Yeah. Okay, well, we'll do that one in May because we'll have a family night, February, uh, February, and then we have our uh, spring family night in May. So we'll do, we'll show Prince Caspian then. Seems to me there's another, there's another announcement. Chafer Seminary, Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference will be March 9th or 11th. What? Gun show. Okay. And and then one other announcement that's, I don't know if it's up on the DBM website now or not, but most of you are familiar with the fact that there's a lady who for the last, I don't know how many years, has done just an incredible job putting together an index of uh, all of the teaching over the past 10 years. Well, due to health problems, she's unable to to type. She's having a lot of problems with her hands, and so she just had to stop just real, just very suddenly in December. And so I think the index is good through December, but we need to find somebody who is who would take this on as she did as a ministry, it needs to be somebody who's pretty detail-minded, and she can, um, she'll help anybody who needs help to get started on it. But we need somebody who would uh, pick up that that ministry and continue with it. Okay, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we always have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can prepare yourself for worship. It is important that any time we study God's word, that is... uh, Part of our worship of the Lord and our service to the Lord. It prepares us to properly serve Him on the basis of what He has revealed to us. 
And so it's important to be in fellowship so that uh, God the Holy Spirit can make maximum use of what we, uh, what we study, what we learn, and can help us in the process of learning it and storing it and recalling it to memory for application. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in fellowship, spiritually prepared for Bible study, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you have just provided so much for us that that we can't even imagine all of the tremendous resources that we have available to us in our spiritual life because of what you've provided in this dispensation, because we have a completed sacrifice on the cross for the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ has paid it all. It's provided everything because we have also the Holy Spirit who indwells us and uh, fills us. We have his empowerment to live the Christian life and his enablement to understand your word. And Father, we just have so many other uh, privileges and blessings that are ours because of our position in Christ that um, uh, we we just can't fathom it. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to explain these things to us. And as we continue our study in Hebrews, probing into the significance of Christ's work on the cross, that which we call the atonement, We pray that we might understand it more clearly and that it would have its intended impact of motivating us in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 9. We've been moving through the paragraph on Hebrews 9, 11 to 15. And we'll start off tonight going back into Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, just to pick up. Uh, the context where we've been and to make sure we have a proper understanding of what is going on in uh, that uh, that passage. Hebrews 9.11 reads, but, when, but Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Reading on into verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, this is not translated well, at least as it stands in the New King James, which is what I have, uh, what I have up on the screen. The New American Standard does a better job of it based on the Greek text because you have these various idiosyncrasies in different translations. Every translation has different little nuances, different things that the translators chose to do in making their translation. And so you always have to understand what those are and deal with them. Uh, one of the things that I have been trying to do for several years is an in-depth study of just the history of the English Bible because you don't get a lot of this material unless you just dig through about 300 pages of material and you find three things that are just you know, re- really helpful. <laughs> and that's just the nature of the, uh, of the animal. But it's very interesting that one of the nuances, one of the idiosyncrasies of the King James translation, 
was that they tried to make every verse an independent sentence. If they couldn't do it, they tried to get as close as they could, and they would try to make it a, uh, appear that uh, as an independent clause, or at least uh, try to get a verse into, into or a sentence into two verses, or sometimes three. But that breaks down the thought structure that you have in the Greek text, and verse eleven and verses eleven and twelve are really one sentence in the Greek. Verse 11 builds off of a participial clause, and verse 12 gives us your main verb, uh, he entered the most holy place. So that tells us that the key thought here is Christ's entry into the most holy place in heaven. He's talking about the heavenly temple here, and everything else that we have in verses 11 and 12 are designed to uh, uh, expand that idea and to focus on this contrast between the limitations of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament in the Mosaic Law and the completion, the completedness of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so we have to pick up a couple of things because, in terms of the grammar, because it isn't clear even in the better translations. The came that you have there in the, that, that appears in the, in both New King James and in the New American Standard, I think, translates it, but when Christ appeared, it seems in English as if that's your main verb. It's not. It's just a participle. And you have to identify the kind of participle that it is because it's not objectively clear in the Greek. You have to work through two or three options to see which logically makes the most sense in the structure of the sentence. The main idea, if you want to look, if you look ahead down into uh, verse 12, is that idea that he entered the most holy place. But before he entered the most holy place, which has to do with his ascension into heaven and session where he sits at the right hand of the Father, before he did that, he came as high priest. The uh, coming as high priest is an aorist participle. Aorist participles will precede the action of an aorist verb. The he entered is an aorist, uh, aorist indicative verb. So the participle, uh, the aorist participle pre- means that the, the action of the participle precedes the action of the main verb. So the coming as high priest is something that preceded his entry into heaven. That's important to understand because there are, uh, the, the New American Standard translates it, but when Christ appeared as high priest, he entered. See, the problem with that is it looks like his appearing as high priest happens at the same time of his entry into the heavenly temple. But he appears as high priest at the incarnation, but I think that the, what the writer is really focusing on is his work as high priest on the cross. That's the context of this whole section. And the key word, I mentioned it last time, we'll see it again uh, some more tonight, but the key word that runs down through this section and into chapter 10 is the this idea of once for all, that Christ's sacrifice was once for all. It's completed as opposed to the continuing or the ongoing nature of the Old Testament sacrifices. So it should be translated, the that, that first participle, uh, paragenomai, 
which means to to come. It's a prefix of uh, the para prefix on getamai means to arrive or to come or be beside, and it has the idea of uh, uh, it should be understood as a temporal participle. After Christ came, he entered uh, heaven. After Christ came as high priest, he then, in verse 12, will enter the most holy place in the heavenly temple. So it's the idea of not just coming, but arrival or appearing, uh, the idea of when he performs that work as the high priest. So we should translate it, but after Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. Now, the New American Standard does a good job of picking up the main verb he entered out of verse 12 and inserting it into verse 11 so that it makes better sense. Uh, they repeat it. They have it in both places, but it should be in both uh, both places. Christ came as high priest. He entered. That's your main idea, and it fits well here. And he, um, uh, before I get to that, the good things to come is getamai. It just introduced something new that's coming into existence of the good things coming into being. Now, last time we looked at this, and that's why it's so important to understand the time factor. After Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, the high priest of the good things to come is all one thing, and it precedes his entry into heaven. So it's focusing his ministry as high priest of the good things to come on the earth. But there's a there's a little bit of a problem there because in some of the older text it uses the word genomai, but in the majority text there's a textual variant and you have instead of the verb genomai you have the verb mellow. Now mellow is used in Hebrews 10:1 as I pointed out last time. And the significance of that is that in 10.1 it says, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come. Now the law is prefiguring or is foreshadowing something that's going to happen later called the good things to come. So the law in the Old Testament is really a shadow or foreshadow of something that's going to happen in the future. And that thing that's, that it's depicting in the future is called the good things to come. You, you, the whole phrase has to be understood as this, this, this label. It's the good thing to come. What was the good thing to come that the law, the sacrifices, specifically the Day of Atonement, depicted? The cross. It's not the... So when the writer in chapter 9 says that Jesus... After he came as high priest of the good things to come, he's not talking about good things to come from our current post-cross perspective, talking about something in the far distant future. He's talking about the fact that, that Christ on the cross is performing the action of the good thing to come. The good thing to come is a term that refers to the uh, redemptive, atoning, uh, expiatory work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what was foreshadowed by the Old Testament uh, sacrifices. So he, he pr- performs his work as the high priest. He is, uh, he is sacrificing himself, and that is the good thing to come. It is a good thing to come from its perspective of uh, what the Old Testament law 
uh, envisioned and foreshadowed. So, but after Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, and that whole phrase focusing on his work on the cross, he then enters, this is the ascension and entry into heaven, he enters through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. Now that word perfect isn't the word for flawless, it's the word for complete or whole or actually the prototype. There's a heavenly temple called the tabernacle, referred to with the word for tabernacle in, in um, uh, Hebrews, referred to as heavenly temple in the book of Revelation. And that is the uh, prototype of the earthly tabernacle and temple. That's what Moses saw that as a, that God allowed him to see that, saw the blueprint, and it is from that that Moses could give guidance to those who were uh, constructing the tabernacle. Also, we know from Chronicles that God showed a plan to David for the temple. And so they're both, both are based on this heavenly prototype here called the greater and more perfect skene or dwelling place. Skene is the Greek word uh, for, for a dwelling place or tent. It is a, a word that also means a, it has that idea of dwelling. The, the Greek word really comes from the, etymologically from the Hebrew word, which is the word Shakan for the verb, Shekinah for the noun, the dwelling place, Shekinah, S-K-N. That's the same consonant pattern you have in Skene. And you can find Skene even in Russian for dwelling and several other uh, languages in that area have uh, borrowed that, that word. So Skene or Shekinah, Shakan, the Mishkan was the term in the Old Testament for the tabernacle. And that's the dwelling place. So it refers to the heavenly dwelling of God that is not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So it is a the heavenly tabernacle. So the focal point here is on what Christ is doing at the cross. Now, verse 11, But when Christ came as high priest for the good things to come, he entered through the greater, more perfect, complete tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this this creation. So it is the complete or perfect prototype, uh, the, the complete prototype that is in heaven. Now, how did he enter? What was the basis of his entry? That's what's described in verse 12. It was not with the blood of goats and calves. So here we have the contrast. In the Old Testament, the priest entered the earthly tabernacle, on the basis of the blood of animal sacrifices, goats and calves, specifically on the Day of Atonement. That's the ritual that's in the background here. But Jesus, in contrast to that, enters the complete heavenly prototype dwelling place of God, the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple, on the basis of his own blood. Now, we've studied the doctrine of the blood of Christ and how this terminology of blood is used all the way uh, through the scripture as an idiom for death because the life was in the blood the blood the presence of blood indicates the presence of life 
The shedding of blood was an idiom for the taking of life or death. So that when we read any of these phrases that talk about the shedding of blood, then that has to do with death. We'll also see the phrase here, the sprinkling of blood. And that is simply an, the, the vivid imagery from the tabernacle worship uh, depicts the application of death to something. That's the picture of, from, from the blood. So not with the blood or not on the basis of the death, the sacrificial death of animals, but on the basis or by means of his own, his own blood he entered. And this is the Greek verb, it's erkamai, it's an, like I pointed out earlier, it's an aorist indicative. It simply summarizes the action in the past, and it means to come in or to go in or to enter someplace. And the place that he is entering here is the most holy place in heaven. It is not the earthly holy place, but it is the heavenly holy place, the throne of God. Now, we see a number of places in Scripture where the idea of the blood is emphasized. And the entry here, and that's the emphasis here, is he entered with his own blood or literally by means of his own blood. And just a couple of passages to remind us and show some connections here. First of all, in Matthew 26:28, Jesus said, For this is my blood of the covenant. This is when he is having the Passover meal, celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples the night before he goes to the cross, and he's going to reinvest the wine and the bread with new meaning in relationship to the the work he's going to do on the cross. Now, what I want you to point out from this passage is the connection between blood and covenant. Now, when you're looking here, as we go through this preview of coming attractions, when we get to verse 15 tonight, we'll see for this reason he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. See, there's your connection. That's the same idea that is being that is that he is stating in Matthew 26:28 that his death is the basis for the covenant. And then when we get to uh, verse 16, for where there is a testament in the New King James, it should be translated for where there is a covenant, there must also be a by of necessity the death of the one who makes the covenant. For a covenant is in force, and he goes on to talk about that. So we see the connection between blood or death and covenant. So Jesus makes this same connection, and it's present every time we celebrate the Lord's table. We are symbolically representing this connection between his death and the establishment of the covenant. Now, just another thing to note from this statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And there we see the use of that noun form for, for forgiveness, uh, aphasis, which is the same word that I focused on in uh, Ephesians 1, 7, and in Titus, I mean, excuse me, in uh, Galatians, uh, Colossians, Colossians one fourteen, that we ha- in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And the idea there is, aphasis, the noun indicates a wiping out of a debt, the erasing of a debt. If you go to the bank and you are are, 
are in an indebted relationship and for some reason they decide to just wipe out the debt, that's called forgiving the debt. You owe money to somebody and they say, that's okay, you don't have to pay me back. That is called forgiving a debt. It no longer exists. It is wiped out. It is canceled. That's the same imagery that, that we talked about in our study of Colossians 2, uh, 14, that the forgiveness that we have at the cross is related to the canceling of the debt that was nailed to the cross. Now, this is so profound because what this is talking about is this, that Paul's talking about Colossians 2, 12 to 14 is the same thing the writer of Hebrews is talking about here, and that is guilt is removed. Now, we have all kinds of people running around all the time who are just plagued by guilt. Some people are more prone to guilt than others because of their sin nature. But there are some people who always feel guilty about something, even though there's nothing to feel guilty about. It's real easy to manipulate people like that because they just you, you just try to blame them with something, and they just automatically assume that they're guilty. And then there's other people, of course, who have seared their conscience to some level, and they don't ever feel like they're guilty about anything, even when they are. But those are subjective guilt feelings. And that's not what we're talking about in these passages. We're talking about real legal guilt. What happens when you have violated the law and you're under, uh, a sentence has been adjudicated and you are under condemnation and you are legally Guilty. And just because you're legally guilty doesn't mean you feel like it. I mean, there's all kinds of people in this world who are legally guilty from the Supreme Court of Heaven for sin, and they even deny that the court exists and that God exists, and they have no sense of anything being being wrong. And then, uh, as I pointed out, there's others who are just the the other way. And just because you don't feel like you're guilty doesn't mean mean you're not. I, I've never once felt guilty about speeding. Just flaws in my character. I don't remember when we first went, moved to Connecticut. I had to spend a lot of money that first year on uh, traffic fines supporting the supporting the state because the roads up there that would be comparable to certain roads here in Texas would have a speed limit 15 to 20 miles slower than the comparable roads in Texas. And so I'd be going down some country road doing 60, and the speed limit was 40. And they had horrible fines. They're just completely irrational. And going down the interstate, and the interstate at that time, when we first moved up there, the speed limit on, on um, six, I guess it was six, was it 395. On 395 was still 55. How barbaric. <laughs> 55 miles an hour on a major interstate. Well, uh, he just, the uh, police officer did not appreciate the fact that I was doing 80. I was just trying to get somewhere. I used to always complain about the people in Connecticut that they never really understood the purpose for a motor vehicle was to get from point A to point B in the most expeditious manner possible. And they wanted you to take as long as possible. And one day I was stopped by a police officer, and after he gave me a ticket, he said, Sir, is this your car? And for, for, it wasn't. It was uh, Pam's, and she was sitting next to me. I said, no, it's her car. Oh, he said, well, I was just wondering because we're looking for a car like this because of a, of a robbery. She, he said, by the way, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he went, oh, no. He said, God always watches out for me, so 
I want to watch out for, for his people, so I never give tickets to rabbis or pastors or priests. But I've already given you a ticket. There's nothing I can do about it. But when you go and go to court, just sign Reverend Dean. And when they read that in the book, the judge will, the judge will take care of it so you won't have to pay a fine. It won't go on your record. That was the best thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> I didn't get any more tickets after that either, so I don't know. But that, I never felt guilty, but that's a, that's the difference between emotional or psychological guilt and real guilt. And there's a lot of people who always feel guilty. And they're not, for whatever it is they feel guilty over, they're just prone that way. And other people don't ever have that sense of guilt, that, those guilt feelings, but they are guilty of something. And that's what, this is talking about the fact that we are all guilty and under condemnation. We're guilty of Adam's original sin, which has been imputed to every single uh, human being. So when Jesus is on the cross, he is going to do the work. His death is going to be the basis for wiping out the guilt so that there is real forgiveness. And as we saw in Colossians 2:12 to 14 this is a forgiveness for all sins for everybody it is that objective canceling of the debt done before the supreme court of heaven it is not the subjective application to each person in terms of their application of Christ's death that's what we'll see in this passage in terms of the concept the, the imagery of sprinkling Another key verse is Romans 3.25, whom God displayed publicly, that's talking about Jesus Christ on the cross, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood or by means of his blood. Propitiation means to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God. Again, just as his work on the cross is Godward in terms of satisfying uh, in terms of pay, making the payment so God can cancel the debt. It's Godward so God can cancel the debt. So his propitiation, his work propitiates or satisfies the justice of God so that he can do that. He can cancel the debt. So we see how propitiation and, and um, forgiveness work together and are part of that objective work toward the Supreme Court of Heaven, the Supreme Justice of Heaven. Five, Romans 5, nine. Much more than having now been justified, so Paul's writing to the believers in Rome in terms of the present reality that we have, that having now been justified by his blood. See, that's application, though. That's subjective. You're not justified until you believe in Christ as your Savior, at which time God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's the difference between the idea of universalism, that everybody just gets saved because Christ died for everybody, and the idea of a limited application. The atonement is unlimited in its scope because it redeems all men, pays the redemptive price. All man's mankind's sins are canceled, forgiven at the cross, and... God is propitiated for all. But the application, the justification, the regeneration, this occurs only to a limited number, those who are 
those who are believers when they believe. Now, another thing I want you to notice here is you can even see this in the English, that the tense of the phrase, having now been justified, is a, is a past tense. We shall be saved is a future tense. That shows the difference between... You thought you got saved when you trusted Christ, didn't you? But see, in Pauline terminology, you were justified when you trusted Christ, and you will be saved when you're glorified. So it shows that Paul uses the term uh, saved in Romans primarily as a phase three term, a glorification term, not a phase one justification term. Dr. Earl Rodmacher used to always like to sort of shock and confuse people by saying that um, you, you were saved, you uh, were getting saved every day. Every single morning I wake up, I'm being saved again. And then I will be saved. And that's just trying to emphasize the point that, that the word saved is used in three different senses. One for justification, one for our spiritual life, and one for our future glorification. Ephesians 1.7 uh, like its counterpart, Colossians 1.14 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness, that is, there's that word again, aphasis, the canceling of the debt. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then one more verse, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb. See the connection there with that imagery of the sacrificed lamb, the blood of the lamb, the death of the lamb is the basis. So again and again, we see that blood is the payment price for sin, but it's actually Death. It is that death of a qualified sacrifice that pays the penalty, the judicial penalty. So that when Christ is on the cross and God imputes to him the sins of man between 12 noon and 3 p.m. before he ever dies physically, that is when the Father, as the Supreme Court of Heaven, adjudicates man's sins and judges Christ. And John, and I mean the Holy Spirit wants to make it clear. So at the end of that, in John 19, first the gospel writer, first John says, and when it was finished, using a perfect tense, emphasizes the completed action. When it was finished, Jesus said, it is finished. And he repeats the same verb form, a perfect tense of teleao. And that, that repetition there in those two verses is designed to put a big bold face on that terminology indicating that Christ's work on the cross com- completes the salvation so that nothing more can be done, nothing more can be added to it. Now back to Hebrews 9.12. So the contrast is between the, the death of animal sacrifices and the death of Christ. The animal's do not have the same value. Their life does not have the same value as that of Christ because Christ is the eternal second person of the Trinity who was without sin. So the contrast is between the limited effect of the, of the death of the animal sacrifices with his, with his death 
And it's on that basis he enters the most holy place once for all. Here's that word, ephapax. Once for all. Never to be repeated again. And that's going to be the contrast that is going to be picked up by the writer all the way through the rest of this chapter and into the next chapter. We see it again down in verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Once, once, once. All the way down through here into the next chapter that Christ died once and it's completed and it's finished in contrast to the fact that the, the Old Testament priests, it was ongoing continually, again and again and again. Every day they had to, every morning there was the morning sacrifice, every evening the evening sacrifice. Now remember the main verb was in this pass, in this verse is he entered. It's an aorist indicative, which means it's a simple past tense form of, of the verb. There are several pa- forms of past tenses in, in Greek. Now, that last phrase, having obtained eternal redemption, is another participle. It's the verb herisco, which means to find, to discover something. It's an aorist participle. And the, the grammar there is important because when you have an aorist participle connected to an aorist verb, the action of the participle precedes the action or comes before the action of the main verb which means he had to, uh, the grammar says that he obtained redemption before he entered the most holy place. So his action of going to the most holy place is subsequent to the completion of his redemptive work. So he he completed the redemption on the cross, and then the redemption is referred to here with the Noun form, lutrosis, which is related to apolutrosis. In, in Colossians 1.14 and Ephesians 1.7, you have the form apolutrosis with the uh, prepositional prefix there, which intensifies the meaning of the, of the noun, which means to uh, purchase out of. And so apa just uh, emphasizes that application of bringing it out. Uh, lutrosis indicates redemption. Deliverance or release. It, it, it's often used in the imagery of a slave market. And that picture of buying or purchasing the freedom of the slave. So these words, lutrosis, um, agorazo, which is the another word that is used. It's from the Greek noun agora, which was the marketplace. Every now and then you'll hear about somebody who's agoraphobia and they don't want to go out of their house and they don't want to be out in public or in open spaces because it's a fear of the marketplace, agora. That was the marketplace. So agorazo means to buy something in the marketplace. And these are the two words that are normally translated redemption. So when you think of that word redemption, the word you should associate with it is purchase, to buy something. And so all through these words that are used for salvation, we have words related to, the, to, to economics, to purchasing, to buying, to paying a price, to canceling a debt. So he, he obtains uh, the word um, used there, heurisco to find, is used as an idiom for discovering something or finding or purchasing something. So he obtains, obtains eternal redemption. It's eternal. It's 
permanent. It's that canceling. The, it's that objective payment of the price that satisfies the righteousness and justice of God so that Christ can be said to have redeemed everyone in that objective sense that he has paid, uh, paid the price. Now, the contrast throughout this section, as I keep saying, is all, he's going to, the writer's going to go back and forth between what Jesus did and what was done in the Old Testament. And Leviticus 16, 3 and 5 emphasizes the role of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He would take the blood of the bull and he would take it in and he would sprinkle it once on the front of the mercy seat and seven times on the ground in front. Now that's interesting because a lot of us have gotten this idea that he takes, he covers the top or he puts a bowl up there, but he just sprinkles the, the mercy seat once and then seven times on the ground in front of the mercy seat. And what that, that is a, uh, it, it depicts the satisfaction of God for the payment price, the blood price, the blood sacrifice, and his, so his justice is satisfied. But it's that sprinkling depicts the cleansing. And then he's going to go back out after he does the uh, bull for the sin offering. He goes back out and kills the ram for the, uh, for the burnt offering. Comes back in, does the same thing again. Then comes back out and takes that same blood, sprinkles it on the, on the altar, the bronze altar out in the courtyard and then puts it on the horns of that altar. Now there's some there's confusion over that because in in Leviticus 16 12 the the, the uh, instructions are to sprinkle the blood on the altar which is before the Lord. And every time you have that phrase the altar before the Lord in Leviticus with one exception Leviticus 4 it's always the bronze altar. And everywhere else in the Old Testament, it's always a bronze altar, except for that one exception, Leviticus 4, where it clearly states the altar before the Lord in the Holy of Holies. It's, it states that in the tent. So there it's referring to the, to the uh, altar of incense. But everywhere else, it's referring to that bronze altar. So this is the contrast between the high priest who had to offer the, a sin and burnt offering for himself first, then for the people, and Jesus who enters himself as the acceptable, uh, as the acceptable sacrifice. And so Aaron had to do this every year when you, uh, he would go in and perform the, all of the rituals on the day of atonement and that cleansed or wiped out the sin problem, the guilt from all the sins from the previous year. And so you go from September all the way around the calendar and all these sins that would pile up all year long would then be dealt with on the Day of Atonement, the sins for the whole nation. And then uh, they'd have to do that every year, and you could, as uh, one year after another. But Romans 6.10 tells us that the death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. This is again repeated Hebrews 7.27, that... Um, that what Christ did in the last phrase, the last two lines up on the, on the screen, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And Hebrews 9.12, which is our passage, Hebrews 10.10, 10, 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And this is the whole point in this passage. Now, in verse 13, we would go on to read for further explanation. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Then verse 14 will go on to read how much more, it's an a fortiori argument, how much more shall the blood of Christ, the comparison between the limited efficacy of the death of an animal versus the permanent efficacy of the death of Jesus Christ. So we covered part of this last time. I've gone back, studied some more things, added a few things to it. The blood of bulls and goats is a reference to the animals that were sacrificed at the, on the Day of Atonement. The ashes of a heifer refer to this unique sacrifice called the red heifer offering. And a lot of people have some different ideas about the red heifer offering because not a lot is said. It seems somewhat, somewhat mystifying because the descriptions are uh, a little bit unusual and it only occurred twice in the Bible. Moses and later Ezra with the, uh, with the second temple after the Babylonian captivity. It happened uh, seven other times, depending on the source you read, maybe five other times. Some say there were only seven red heifer offerings. Others say uh, there, were not, there were nine. The Mishnah uh, tractate that deals with this states that there were there were nine, so we'll, we'll accept that, but it might have been seven because uh, it attributes two to uh, two different high priests during the intertestamental period. So if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. Now, last time I looked at, we looked at the passage uh, in, in the scriptures relating to the red heifer. And I'm just going to summarize that again, bring out a couple of other points. It's a unique and a rare sacrifice. Uh, like I said, only nine, maybe seven in, in all of history. It has elements of a sacrifice, but its primary purpose was, was for purification. After serious sin, and in several in the cases we know of, it involved uh, death or it involved ceremonial or ritual defilement of all of the people. The, it's another, one reason it's unique is because it, the animal has to fit a certain color, a red heifer, complete, no, no other color hair. It has to be solid red. If there were, according to the Mishnah, if there is, was two white hairs or two black hairs, it was disqualified. And the animal is taken outside of the tabernacle for the sacrifice, and then the blood was splattered on the ground again toward the tent of the meeting, but still outside the camp. And that is a picture that is picked up by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13:12, when he talks about Jesus' death on the cross. He says, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So the, 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 um, the, the sacrifice of Christ on Golgotha, Golgotha was outside of the gate. Now, there's a lot of controversy historically 
over just exactly where that was located, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on that uh, tonight. I, we could spend a clear hour talking about it, but the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which usually turns off most Protestants because it's just you had one, two or three different chapels built over over the, this site where they believe Jesus was crucified and buried. And it really surprises most people because the distance from where uh, they believe Jesus was crucified to where he was buried is about the distance from where I'm standing to our front classroom uh, up by that front door in the back section over there. So that's not very far away, is it? It's really close, and it surprises everybody, but, it, but that's, that's the distance. And I think that there's uh, good historical documentation that this would be the location. One of the reasons it wasn't accepted for centuries was because they believed that the gate, that this location wasn't outside the gate, but it wasn't until about uh, 20 or 30 years ago that they were doing some excavating in a Russian Orthodox church just about maybe uh, 30 or 40 yards east of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They went down to the basement. They discovered the, the foundation of the wall, and they even have a gate there that has uh, been, been restored, and you can go down the basement of the church and see the foundation of the wall. So that meant that, that the site of the Holy Sepulchre was indeed outside the gate, and this was where they would crucify, uh, crucify criminals. Now, the word that is used here in verse 13 for sprinkling is the Greek word rontizo, which simply means that it's just a general word to splatter, to sprinkle, to scatter uh, something. It's, it's distinct from words like bathe, luao, which we've talked about, or to uh, wash your hands. That's the word nipto. This is a more narrow sense, just to sprinkle something on something, and it picks up the idea from the from the Hebrew in the Old Testament. Now, in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, there were two words that were used. There's, and I don't have these up on the screen. One was the word nazah, n-a-z-a-h, nazah, and the other was zarak, z-a-r-a-q, and they're virtually indistinguishable. Possibly zarak indicated a little more forceful. Uh, splattering, maybe sprinkling with one finger for the first one and the whole, using the whole hand, the second one, but, but that's not even, even clear. Uh, most believe that they're, that the words are virtually, uh, virtually interchangeable. And this picks up the imagery that occurred with the ashes of the red heifer. The heifer, and to fit certain qualifications that are outlined in Leviticus 19.2, had to be unblemished. Now, a heifer is about three years old, and according to the Mishnah, you would wait until the heifer is three years old and has never given birth to a calf and has never been yoked, never been used for labor. And it's during those three years that the heifer is evaluated. Some would compare that to the approximate three years of the ministry of the life of Christ. I'm not sure that's the imagery there. That may be taking typology just a little too far. Uh, but the sacrifice, the animal was to be unblemished and unyoked with no defect. And then uh, the animal, the, the entire animal would be burned, hide flesh, intestines, everything mixed with cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet, Leviticus 19, 5 and 6. 
and then these ashes were to be kept. You never, you didn't keep the ashes of any other sacrifice. You'd keep the ashes of this sacrifice and mix it with spring water. Couldn't be a still water. Had to come from a live spring. Uh, otherwise, if it's just sitting in, in like a pond or something, that would be uh, considered it's, it's not moving. So uh, it had to be a, a live spring and mix it with that water and then would be splattered on those, sprinkled on those who were unclean, who had been contaminated ritually by touching a dead body. This would happen on the third day and then again on the seventh day in the ritual of becoming clean. And the priest who would sprinkle the person who was unclean, would then himself become ritually unclean until nightfall. And then he would be, uh, then he would be clean. So it picks up that imagery of sprinkling the unclean. You have other examples and other situations in the, um, in the Old Testament where, uh, there were a number of times when sprinkling occurred number of times when sprinkling occurred, for example, when Moses first dedicates the temple, he is going to take the blood of the sin offering and he's going to splatter it on all the items of furniture in the temple, on all the vessels, on all the curtains, on everything, because that sanctifies it. It sets it apart to the service of God. And so that picture of sprinkling uh, is then applied, that imagery is applied to us, by, uh, for example, Peter, that when we are saved, we are sprinkled by the blood of the blood of Christ, which sanctifies us. And it's simply talking about applying the death of Christ to the person who believes on Him as Savior, and that is then the basis for our uh, positional uh, sanctification. So the the person who is unclean here is using the Greek word uh, koinao meaning to be ritually unclean, it then sanctifies um, for the purifying of the flesh. And sanctification there, I don't have this word up on the screen, is cut, uh, from the uh, Greek verb hagiadzo, which is the counterpart to the Hebrew word kadash, meaning to sanctify or to set apart for the purification, katharotes, the purification of the flesh. See, the sacrifices did something. They really did cleanse for ritual observance. There was limited but real application, but it only lasted for a short amount of time. It didn't have any sort of permanent value. Now, let me just say a couple of more things about this red heifer uh, sacrifice. The red heifer sacrifice only was only used twice in the canonical period, each time when they are dedicating the service in the temple after a time of tremendous sin and a period when the temple mount would have become uh, unclean, uh, unclean due to death. And so that would have occurred when the Babylonians destroyed the temple the first time. There were many that were killed on the temple mount, so that rendered the, the land uh, ceremonially uh, unclean. And then, so when they came back from the Babylonian captivity, they would have to cleanse the temple and they would have to kill the animal across the way. Let me see, I have a picture here. They would take, here's a uh, modern red heifer. They're trying to breed one now, but they haven't been successful. 
And it's it, it, like as I pointed out, this is a rare sacrifice, and it's extremely rare in history that a pure red heifer has ever been born. Jay can probably help me out on this later. Uh, understand now you've got some people. The problem with this is you got folks who are trying to manipulate prophecy, and you've got a couple of fundamentalists in Texas and in Alabama who've been trying to genetically produce a red heifer. And that's the silliness of a lot of evangelicals and fundamentalists who think that somehow they're going to speed up the process, and they can't do it. Uh, There will be a temple that is built during the tribulation period. It might even be built before the tribulation period. But before it could be functional, it's going, the Temple Mount's going to have to be cleansed. And to do that according to the law, they're going to have to have a pure red heifer that it fits all the qualifications, born in Israel, born in the land, meets the rabbinical qualifications, and is going to be evaluated and tested, and is then going to be, uh, be sacrificed, and the ashes of the red heifer will be used for the purification of the Temple Mount. But that will only happen when it's God's timing. Just as in the past, a red heifer was only born when God, when it was needed. And when, and that's under the control of God. Now, in the first temple period, when they would have a red heifer uh, sacrifice, see, this is in, in the distance there, you have the, the temple. We're on the east side of the temple. The valley in between is the Kidron Valley. And they built a, an altar on the Mount of Olives for the sacrifice of the red heifer. Because they, they had to walk across this purified bridge so that they, they didn't touch any ground that had been defiled by dead people, by a body in war or something of that nature. And so they built this special uh, rampart across the uh, Kidron and where they performed the red heifer uh, sacrifice uh, across on the Mount of, Mount of Olives. Now, last thing I want to say about this is today there's a lot of talk. Every now and then you hear people say well, that some, something comes up about the uh, they're trying to breed a red heifer and people get all excited about it. But all the things that are happening in, in uh, Israel, the uh, reconstruction of temple furniture, the desire, you know, the Temple Mount Faithful and the Temple Institute to rebuild the uh, what would be the third temple. Those that that's all stage setting. Doesn't mean we're any closer to the rapture than we were, you know, 200 years ago. It just means that that Israel is closer to being prepared for the things that will happen after the rapture. But it doesn't tell us that we're any closer. Just because, you know, the best analogy I can think of is that if you walk into a theater and there's no props on the stage, you know that before the play can begin, the stagehands have to come in and get all the, all the furniture and all the props out on the, on the stage. So you must be a certain distance from the action of the play. Now, if you come in and everything is set and ready to go, it looks like you're ready and it could start at any minute, but it may still be several hours before it actually starts. And so we don't know. The rapture is imminent. It's a signless event. Nothing has to transpire before that. But there are certain things that are going to happen after the rapture. 
There was a writer in the early part of the 20th century by the name of Clarence Larkin. Some of you have read his book and seen his chart books on uh, dispensational truth. Clarence Larkin said that if the rapture occurred in his generation, it would probably be uh, 75 to 100 years before the tribulation could begin because the Jews weren't even back in the land at that point. Uh, They had no temple built on the Temple Mount. Uh, None of these other things that would be necessary uh, necessarily in place at the beginning of the tribulation were ready. And so he saw that, wow, there's going to be a gap between the uh, between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation of 75 or 100 years. Well, it's 100 years later now, and many, many of these things are in place. But just because many things are in place doesn't mean Jesus is coming next month, next year, or in 50 years. And it's sad to see so many evangelicals have bought into sort of a pop prophecy uh, eschatology that they think that because these things are there that Jesus is going to come back. So, well, let's not contribute to our uh, retirement. Let's not worry about the future. Uh, Let's not get involved in politics. Let's just sit back and watch Rome burn because Jesus is going to come back and this is just the inevitable judgment on uh, the cosmic system. Well, unless they have a pipeline to God and God's told them stuff that he hadn't told anybody else, we can't say that. We don't know what would happen. God's given us volition and we're to exercise our responsibility in every area of life and live in one sense as if God, as if Christ is going to come back tomorrow and we will have to give an answer for our lives at the judgment seat of Christ tomorrow. But he may not come for another 500 years or 50 years, and most of us won't live to see it. And so we have to prepare for our future as if Jesus isn't coming back for another 100 years. And that sort of a uh, seems like a little bit of a, of a, a contradiction for believers, but that's how we are to live. So next time we'll come back, we'll wrap this up. This paragraph up and down to verse 15, we're just about have covered everything that needs to be covered. We still need to talk about what it means that Christ has cleansed our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's the purpose of the cleansing is for us to serve God. And so we'll come back and look at that uh, next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be encouraged by our completed understanding of the completed work of Christ on the cross, his once-for-all sacrifice, and that he gave himself that we might have real life, that we might be completely cleansed and able to serve you. We pray that you would challenge us with all of these uh, things we've studied this evening. In Christ's name, amen.